I titled the sermon today, A Trusting Soul. Our souls struggle to trust. We want our souls to be trusting. In fact, if you think about the way that our souls were created, they were created and built with the ability to, with the desire for, with the necessity of trust. Our souls were not built to function independently, but to function independence, in dependence upon the Lord himself. But we have broken our own trust, and others have broken trust with us. And so what happens is our trust has become misplaced or unused. We put our trust in the wrong things, or we ignore and try to make a life in which we need very little trust. To the temple approaching comes one who is a trusting soul. And as he comes, telling about his own story of deliverance, he is exhorting us. He is exhorting the congregation as a whole to share in his story, to share in his trust and in the deliverance that God gave to him. Trust isn't easy. Trust isn't easy when you are surrounded by the nations, as the psalmist describes himself here. They are surrounding him like bees would be swarming around you. We're surrounded by people who are skeptical or who scorn the faith, doubters. We're surrounded by those who would say, the trust that you exhibit is a fool's errand. It is foolhardy. And so I titled this sermon today, A Trusting Soul, recognizing the other meaning that is attached to that phrase. On the one hand, we might think it would be good to have a trusting soul, but the reality is that when, when we call someone a trusting soul, generally speaking, we mean that in a demeaning way. What we mean to say is that that person is naive. They're gullible. Ah, he's a trusting soul. Doesn't live in the real world with everybody else and is therefore a chump, a mark, a patsy, a sucker. Those are the phrases that come up if you, if you use a thesaurus to look at this phrase, a trusting soul. We want our souls to trust, to be faithful, but what if that very trust in an invisible God makes us look like a gullible sucker in the eyes of the world, somebody who fell for something and isn't a realist at all? Think about this. It is the very trust of Jesus that is mocked when he is on the cross. He trusts in God. Okay? Let's see how your trust does now. When nails have pierced you to this piece of wood, hand and feet, and crowns are around your head, 
Let's see how your trust does now. Let's see if that God in whom he trusts delivers him now. We want to have a trusting soul. Be careful what you ask for. Let's look at this passage today. This psalm today, then, is something of an anatomy of trust. It's a pattern that we'll see reflected throughout the Scriptures. And the first thing that you notice when you start to look at a psalm like this and you start to think about trust is that trust is forged in the furnace of distress. So the psalmist opens up the story of the one trusting soul approaching the temple. Out of my distress, I called to the Lord. Now that sounds really familiar to us, especially if you were here last week. It should sound really familiar to us. Out of the deeps, out of the depths, I cry out to you my God. It is the song that we sang, the second song that we sang in our service today. And this is one of those lessons that I I suppose if if you grew up in Sunday school, uh, we've heard this lesson taught to us all throughout our lives from the Bible from beginning to end that, that trust is formed in a mortar in which we are the object to be crushed. crushed, And the pestle that is used for that crushing consists of our own sins, sins that have been committed against us, enemies that exist in this world, Satan. And yet the pestle itself, and this is also the lesson of the Scriptures, though it doesn't seem that way at first, but then you realize this is the lesson, the pestle itself is held in the hand of an omnipotent, sovereign, loving Father. Verse 18 of our passage, the Lord has disciplined me severely. Who disciplined the trusting soul? In this particular case, we don't We don't see that it's just the enemies, but we see that behind the enemies is the discipline of the Lord. God's hand is on the pestle. Or think back a couple of weeks ago to when we looked at Psalm 42, 43. All of your waves, all of your breakers have gone over me. It's God who is controlling this pestle that is crushing us. What he must do is crush our delusions of self-security, of self-determination. He must wipe those aside before he begins to build trust within us. And so in this psalm, this trusting soul finds himself surrounded by enemies, surrounded by the nations. They're surrounding him like bees, and he has absolutely no way out. He is on the brink of destruction and says it this way, verse 13, I was pushed hard so that I was falling. He was falling into the pit, off of the cliff, however you want to visualize it, He's falling because he's been pushed so hard by these enemies that the Lord is using in his life. He's on the brink of destruction. Who can help in a situation like this? 
Verses 8 and 9 are kind of like proverbial teaching in the midst of this psalm, and they positively instruct us to trust in the Lord, but negatively, let's look at it the other way, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. What are options for trust when you're falling? Well, is there somebody to help? A man, princes, the idea there is all points in between. Somebody who's a nobody or somebody who's everybody, the prince, and all points in between. Is there anything that I can trust in to get me out of this? But there wasn't any ultimate help in man. All the nations were surrounded and against him. And so we say, but wait, 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 maybe there are others who can help you. Maybe your own family, maybe your own nation could help you out of this particular situation, your friends. And now we come to verse 22, though a little bit early in the sermon, this one that is quoted so many times in the New Testament, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, I don't know how well the Israelites understood exactly what was being said there, but I know exactly how Jesus uses it. Jesus uses it to say that not only have the nations rejected me, Not only have I found them to be my enemies, but in fact, the very people who ought be my friends, which is to say the builders of the temple, even they, even the ones who are closest to me, have rejected me. And they are, in fact, of no help now that I am falling. And this is a painful, and we'd rather not admit it, but it's a painful lesson that runs throughout the Scriptures as well. Eve should have been able to trust Adam. Adam should have been able to trust Eve. Abel should have been able to trust his brother. Sarah should have been able to trust Abraham. Abraham should have been able to trust Sarah. Rebecca should have been able to trust Isaac and Isaac should have been able to trust Rebecca. And none of them are reliable. Not one of them. Moses was against the Egyptians. Remember, this is the, 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 we're reflecting back on the deliverance here. Those are the enemies surrounded by the nations. The Egyptians are the problem. But guess what? As we studied Exodus, what we see right away is that the Egyptians aren't the only problem. The Israelites are the problem or become the problem almost as much as the Egyptians are the problem. He should have been able to trust the Israelites, and the Israelites should have been able to trust him. And yet, not only do the Israelites become the problem, but Moses himself becomes the problem as well. There are no men, there are no women, there are no people. Your best friend can't help. Your husband, your wife, no one can help when we are falling into this pit. But misplaced trust will seek out anything, something so that it gives it a sense of security, insurance policies, friends, a nice fat bank account, a strong country, a good defense. They'll seek out things for security. But God breaks them down. That brings us to the second part of this anatomy lesson. If trust is forged in distress, 
then in that distress, trust is forced to look to the true and ultimate object of its trust. In particular, the name of the Lord. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. Three times. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now take a quick scan at this psalm for a moment. You don't even have to read, just scan it. Look at the amount of times that the name of the Lord is used in the psalm. Look at it. It's in almost every single verse. There are a few places where a pronoun is used, but for the most part, the emphasis is clear. You know, use a modern writing, isn't that saying the name a little bit too often? You know, we, we got it. We know who you're talking about. Just say him, he. But he continually uses the name of the Lord because it is in the name of the Lord that the psalmist finds his ultimate security, the place, the one in whom he can actually trust. Sometimes in the Hebrew it's abbreviated as Yah. Sometimes it's written all the way out as Yahweh. Israel knows my name. I have revealed my name to them. And in telling them my name, revealing to them who I am, I have shown them that I am their creator, their provider, and their redeemer. In telling them my name, I have entered into intimate covenant with them. I have revealed myself and my steadfast love to this particular people who know exactly who I am. Israel is a people who has the name set upon them. We'll close the service uh, in a few minutes with the benediction, the ironic benediction from Numbers. What immediately follows that benediction is the phrase, and thus Aaron shall set the name on the people of God. In that benediction that they received, that you received, the name of the Lord is being set upon them. This psalm, this story of deliverance, this particular one for us in Psalm 118, is thus part of the accumulated witness to the power of the name to deliver. What we have written in Scripture, this psalm, the other psalms, the stories that are contained herein, are the authoritative witness of God to His name and to the power and all that it represents. When you and I tell our stories of faith to one another, uh, and it might be casual around a dinner table that we tell our testimonies with one another, it might be something more organized. Uh, The guys have had a couple of men's breakfasts recently, and at each one of them, one of the men has given their testimony of how they came to know the Lord. Though we are not authoritative in the sense of the Word of God, what we are doing when we share those testimonies is we are entering into, we're doing the same. We are giving the testimony, the accumulated witness to the power of the name of the Lord to deliver even us. When every hand in this world 
seems too weak or too unwilling to lend us a hand to deliver us from the the pit, the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Trust, when it is in distress then, looks to its object, that hand, that name of the Lord. And it does the only thing that it can do. There are no handholds. There's nothing to grab on. It's falling, and it has one activity left. Cry out. Cry out to the Lord. It's the only activity that is left. There's nothing you can do. There's no doctors who can help you. Cry out to the Lord. And then in the anatomy of trust, the soul responds to this deliverance. The soul expresses its trust, and that's what we have in this psalm, in praise, in testimony and teaching, like we saw in verses 8 and 9, in song, Verses 14 and 15, the Lord is my strength and my song. Verse 15, glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous, and it expresses its trust and its object of trust in thanksgiving. That is what this trusting soul is doing. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. Verse 21, I thank you that you have, entered, uh, that you have answered me. Verse 28, You are my God, I will give thanks to you. Verse 29, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And so while this trusting soul speaks individually most of the time in the first person singular, he's going to the temple. He's going to the temple, to the place that God has established with the people of God, and there he is going to give thanks. Now let me just give one a little bit of a segue here as it relates to that idea. We live in, an era, in, a, in a time when we devalue any institutions, and amongst the ones that we are easily tempted to devalue is the church. Why do I need to go to church? I can just give thanks to the Lord at home. I don't need to go to church to give thanks to the Lord. Or I don't need to go to the church with people there I can just give thanks with my family. And yet the image here is that while the individual worshiper is thankful and while he is singing a song, what he longs to do is to be in the place that God has established with the people of God and therein give his thanks to the Lord. Is it good to give thanks individually? Yes, it is. Is it good to give it in the context of your family? Absolutely. And then you bring it to the place where God has established and no longer do you have to carry that thank offering over to Jerusalem. You come all over the world where God has assembled his people and entrusted the church with the ministry, the oracles, and the ordinances for the gathering up of the people of God for the worship of God. You come to the place that God has established, and everyone here takes up the song with you. Everyone sings along with you, this story of redemption. As this one comes, in his trust is their trust. His trust is infectious. As he walks through their midst, 
You can imagine him going through the midst of the people. There are tents. Glad songs are not only coming from him, but they're in the tents of the righteous. And then as they get to the gates, as they enter into the gates, everybody is singing this song of the goodness of God, of the deliverance that God has given to him. As Derek Kidner puts it, his individual battle has become a shared victory, a communal rejoicing. And it will be culminated with sacrifice. Verse 27, bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. All of which leads to a question. And before I ask this question, I need us just for the sake of doing this to imagine that you're not who you are, that in fact we are Israelites, perhaps living after the Babylonian captivity. The exile uh, is over. We have returned back to Jerusalem. The temple has been rebuilt. We hear it's not as nice as the former temple that used to exist. It's not as glorious. But here we are. It's Passover. Maybe we live outside Jerusalem a little bit, but we've come to Jerusalem. We've come to the Passover, and we have just sung this psalm with the people of God. Then we have a question, and the question is, who are we talking about? Who is this trusting soul? And a little conversation goes on. Is it Moses? No, this is the Egyptian Hillel. This makes sense that Moses, Moses sang this song. It was Moses' song. That's what it's called back in Exodus chapter 15. Or maybe it's a song in which you go to the first person, but the first person here is referencing Israel collectively. So it's kind of our song. Each of us has our story. We contribute our story to this story that is here. Or perhaps it's David. After all, David wrote a lot of psalms of deliverance. He was a king who experienced rejection and then is brought back. Perhaps it's David who's singing this, or maybe it's Solomon, his son, who is singing this psalm. It's unclear. It's shadowy. Has this one come already, or are we expecting someone to come? Because so many of the biblical stories sound just like this. So many biblical stories would fit into this pattern. And you could say, wow, this is a story about And you could fill in 20 different stories that sound a lot like this or that would be appropriate for the singing of this song. And the very repetition, the repetition of this song, of this psalm for the people of God is great. It engenders trust. You trust it more. You hear it over and over again and it engenders trust. But the repetition of this psalm is also difficult because it shows us and it points to, in the same way the sacrifices did, that's pointed out for us in the book of Hebrews, the fact that we have to sing it over and over again and the fact that we reflect on these people about whom it might be written points to the fact that none of them is ultimately righteous. So what the psalmist wants to do is to go into the house of God, to enter into the gates of righteousness. And yet, if you look at all the people that I mentioned, leading candidates for this, Moses, uh, Israel, David, Solomon, their unrighteousness is plain. It's there for all of us to see. So the question becomes not merely how do you get into these earthly gates of this man-made earthly temple, but how does somebody get into that which it represents, namely the very gates and courts of heaven? 
How is someone unrighteous going to get there who is trusting enough for that nobody? And so the congregation looks. Who is it? Who can come into this place? Because the Psalms themselves testify that there is none righteous. No, not one. Now, let me just put a little bit of a parenthesis here real quickly. All of us, or not probably all of us, but some of you know that there are psalms in which the psalmist is protesting his innocence or his righteousness. It is the Psalter as a whole that informs us of the meaning of those parts. So when the psalmist is reflecting something like that, he's not making a statement that I am perfectly righteous. What he's saying is that in this particular incident, I can't think of anything that caused that to take place. Because the overall message of the psalms is there's not one righteous. There's nobody who can ultimately get all the way into the gates, into the presence of God. Because there's nobody who has a perfectly clean heart and perfectly clean hands as they approach. There's not one trusting soul. So Jesus completes his earthly journey. He's arriving at Jerusalem. Get the donkey ready. And as he comes in, they take up this psalm. And the leaders are not happy. Jesus, tell them to stop this song right now. You can't let them sing this song about someone coming into Jerusalem, about someone coming up to the gates who is a righteous one, who is the son of David, who's a king. You can't let them sing it about you. Oh, I can't stop them. The stones would cry out if I tried to stop them. And so the crowds, as they're coming in, as they're following in, some are then asking, who is this? Who is this one? Who is the one? It is Jesus who comes in the name of the Lord, a trusting soul. Now, little would they have realized at this point that the deepest distress that Jesus would face is not in front of him, is not behind him. He hasn't come through it, but rather it's in front of him. Now, Jesus experienced God's deliverance throughout his life. He escaped with his family to Egypt because of those who sought his life. Satan tempted him, and he was delivered from it. There are several times that the Gospels record that the crowds were ready to kill him, and he escaped from that. So in minor ways, he had experienced exactly what this psalm describes, and yet the cross remained in front of him. He had to go to Jesus, to Jerusalem, pardon me, to die, to be rejected by all. The psalmist cries out, I shall not die, but I shall live. And yet Jesus goes to die. They sang, bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar, not realizing, again, Derek Kidner, that the horns of the altar would become the arms of the cross. He himself would enter the mortar to be crushed by the pestle of his, sin, of, of his enemies, of Satan, of our sins, 
when ultimately that pestle was in the hand of his father. Yet it was, Isaiah 53, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. The trusting soul goes, enters into the place where he has a right to be as the only righteous one, and in bearing our sins, the Lord grinds him and crushes him. The people reject that bind the sacrifice, that joyful little song that they're singing about, bind the sacrifice, instead would become cries of crucify him. Only in admitting and owning our rejection of his trusting soul is our soul prepared to trust. Israelites, Gentiles, all the nations must own the rejection of this trusting soul who comes, whose song we want to sing before your soul is really ready for trust and deliverance. And then, in his life, is our life, in his trust is our trust, in his death is our death, in his resurrection is our resurrection, in his victory is our victory. For we have died, and our lives are hid with Christ in God. And therefore, because we have died in union with Christ, we can take the psalm on our lips again. We can cry out when we're in distress. And we can say, I shall not die, but I shall live and give testimony and praise to the Lord. His song is our song. O Israel, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. O Israel, O people, of God. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and soul. In distress, learn what God is doing, crushing your soul to form it back up so that your soul trusts in the one whose soul was perfect in trust. Daughter of Zion, your king is coming to you. Hosanna in the highest.